Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. This week, we have a different type of episode that came out of last week's Digiday Publishing Summit in Key Biscayne, Florida. In the first part of this episode, Bloomberg Media CEO Justin Smith walks through the reasons to feel optimistic about the state of digital media today. But then Justin cautions that the future might be, well, smaller than once imagined. I then joined Justin on stage for a conversation about this. Hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everybody. Very nice to be here. I'm a huge brand fan of Digiday, because as I've been in this industry for a while, and, and I'm very, very grateful that Digiday came along and actually helped us on a, on a daily basis decode what is an incredibly complex and difficult and ever-changing and ever more uh, mystifying at times industry. So um, I uh, am the CEO of Bloomberg Global Media. Bloomberg Media Group is the consumer media arm of Bloomberg LP, which is the largest business and financial information company in the world. And so uh, you may have heard of Business Week. We own Bloomberg.com. We compete, obviously, in the business and financial media space. And I just thought I would kick you guys off today with a quick uh, presentation about how I and my colleagues and all of us on the ground working, um, we think at a pretty high level in the industry, where we see the industry going across the coming years. And I call it the future of publishing um, brighter but smaller than you think. And publishing, I defined as really content-based or journalism-based media, so it doesn't apply necessarily to everyone. And it starts with the reality of the last nine months. We're, we're finishing the third quarter. 2019 um, will go down as the year with more terrible, more depressing, and more final headlines about the state of the media industry. You literally, if you read all these headlines, you would think that the publishing industry was on its last, last legs that was about to actually fold and be extinct forever. And there's good reason for that. I mean, as the duopoly is a reality now. In fact, it's so much of a reality that it's actually becoming more than duopoly because Amazon and Microsoft and LinkedIn have gotten in on the fun. Um, for us in the business media space, it's a little known fact, but LinkedIn has $2 billion of display advertising and it's growing at a double-digit rate faster than any of the competitors. So LinkedIn is, in fact, the largest global B2B media company on the planet not the Wall Street Journal, not Bloomberg, not others. Um, and in addition to that, the new the new media emperors really are you know has been have been shown to have no clothes. The great great disruptors, the new um, business models that were uh, going to energize the media industry and going to replace legacy media, really one by one across this last year and beyond, you've seen them falter. You've seen valuations come dramatically down. Can you believe Vice was, was valued at 5.7 billion in 2017, or 6 billion? It's now valued at less than maybe 1.5, 1.6 billion and coming down. Disney wrote off their $400 million investment in Vice down to zero. And of course, you know, the Buzzfeeds and the Voxes, really great companies that were innovating and doing new things because of the external environment and because of these, of the, the role of the platforms have actually turned into sort of slower growth companies. Um, and fire sales of places like Mashable have, 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 have shocked the industry. And all of this, if you're in the content and journalism business, has led to a huge exodus and decline in the number of employees in, in actual newsrooms. We've lost 25% of journalists across the entire industry since 2008 until 2018. 
So you look at all this, and you look at these headlines, and you think, my goodness, you know, should I change industries? You know, should I just pack my bags and, and give up at this point? Um, all these challenges look so overwhelming and so difficult. And yet, when you actually break it down piece by piece, um, and you talk to, I think, a, a lot of people who are on, many like, many, many like you, who are on the front lines every day looking entrepreneurially for new opportunities, you actually can, um, a brighter picture actually does emerge. Uh, and this is sort of a counterintuitive, hopeful prediction or saying, most important thing is I'm not saying is that there is absolutely no silver bullet. I think we've been looking for silver bullets for a long time, whether it be the decline of the platforms or the rise of new things that publishers can do. That the truth is that there's no silver bullet whatsoever. But if you look in the nooks and crannies of the day-to-day -day operations of running a publishing and a media company, I see and what my colleagues see is a number of green shoots emerging. And in fact, from this notion that the industry would be dying in 2019 and extinct forever, I think you could actually take a lot more hope at the years coming forward. And I think we may be on at the, at the, at the bottom of a cycle which can be overcome with a lot of smart decisions. And here's why. So obviously consumer revenue has been the buzzword. Um, two years ago, I spoke uh, at this conference and I said, well, you know what? Consumer revenue and subscription revenue and paywalls are exciting and great, but they really are have only been successfully adopted by one, two, three, you know, less than the fingers that you can count on your hand. This is not a widespread successful phenomenon. And in fact, people were being duped into thinking that you throw up a paywall and all of a sudden you're going to have consumer revenue and you'll have a great balance of your revenue streams from advertising. this. And that just was not the case. But again, across the last 24 months, you're starting to see some shifts in this approach. Um, obviously, we have the whole global consumer shift where brands like Netflix and Amazon Prime are now selling something like $15 billion of subscription revenue chasing premium high quality content. And you have the same in the music industry, which went from literally from you know, like Lazarus rising from the ashes through platforms like Spotify to actually create great value for music once again. And I think that we're going to maybe see something similar in the, in, the, in the media industry around high quality, differentiated content, preferably vertical content, vertical industry-wise or vertical passion or enthusiasm-wise. I don't think if you're a general interest sort of political publication, you're necessarily going to succeed with a, with a paywall. But you have places like The Athletic which is a brand new brand that came out with a paywall strategy, does not have a heritage of being well known, but it came out with a view that we're gonna produce superior content for a very specific set audiences or set of audiences. And now The Athletic has 600,000 subscribers and they're planning on hitting 1 million subscribers by the end of 2019. That's pretty impressive. You have a place like The Information, again, on a much smaller scale, but this is a Silicon Valley-based publication. It's looking to be the Wall Street Journal of Technology in, Sil and, and, in Silicon Valley. And they have hired tremendous journalists with great, great skills and news gathering capabilities and analysis. And they've become indispensable for a small group of people. Now, it's still a small business, but it is a subscription business built with a brand new brand from nothing. We at Bloomberg have been very fortunate, and we may be an outlier because our brand has been around for a long time, but we launched a subscription business about 15, 16 months ago, and it has been absolutely one of the most successful things that we've ever done. 
We are definitely reaping the rewards of, of 20, 25 years of our content being out there. But the lesson here is that quality differentiated content actually will generate consumer revenue more than people believe. Phase one of this publisher platform battle was largely fought over the advertising that was tied up around direct, to direct response, which was in the old world largely lived within newspapers and, and the, that giant sucking sound of advertising from classifieds into Google search and then ultimately into Facebook, hundred billion dollars of something that something of that nature. That round of, of, of battle between publishers and platforms was just decisively won by the platforms because, frankly, they created a direct response mousetrap that was way superior to anything traditional media had. Round two, which has already begun and we're sort of in the throes of, is, is going to be more about brand advertising. There's $220 billion of brand advertising in the world today trapped in traditional television, linear TV, and print, and some other forms of traditional media that is moving rapidly online. And then, of course, you have digital revenue in traditional digital platforms that are now moving to more modern platforms, too. And I think that this, this round is still going to favor the platforms because of their scale, their data, all the things we know. But I think publishers will have a slightly better edge this time. Number one, I th there's been tons of work around this question of monetizing off-platform. Um, and four, three, four, five years ago, people just were literally making no money whatsoever. Now you're seeing some examples, more and more examples of people building real businesses on top of platforms. Real businesses with revenues and costs and profits that actually can be measured. And um, for instance, and in particular, not all platforms, but if you look at platforms like YouTube and YouTube TV, and you look at platforms like Twitter, where they've, the platforms themselves have given publishers more adv advantageous uh, revenue splits. You know, we at Bloomberg created something called TikTok for, by Bloomberg, which is a, a global social news mobile video channel, and it entirely lives on Twitter. And it's a very, very big business, and the, one of the biggest businesses that we have. And it's benefiting from the growth levels of social media, but the advertisers are attaching to it because they're going into a Bloomberg brand-safe environment that's embedded on a platform. And so they're getting the growth and the excitement of the platform, but then they're getting the safety and the context and the quality of a brand that's living on a platform. You can see this the same thing with Condé Nast. Condé Nast actually has, is obviously going through its share of changes and, and, uh, and, and new leadership now. But they've been talking about the investments they've been making in video and all the different Condé Nast brands, what they're doing across different social platforms with video, and the possibilities that they're actually really scaling a real business there uh, is, is, what, is what, what they're talking about. So this will all lead, I think, to an improvement in the relationships between platforms and publishers. I think the days of it being a sort of a one-sided relationship are, are, are coming to a uh, to, to an end, and, it's, and you're seeing, again, the thawing of the relationship in different ways. The platforms have significant trust issues still to solve that are not yet solved. The platforms know that quality content partners actually allow them to solve that, those trust issues and allow them to maintain engagement. 
know, Facebook's engagement as a platform, even though they're way, they're over 2 billion daily active users, has declined almost 10% across the last 18 months. And so the need for quality content, the need for engagement is actually going to force them to treat publishers with quality content in a very different way. And you're already beginning to see this. I'm not sure if anyone in the room has been in negotiations with Facebook about their new Surface news product, where actually, for the first time, Facebook is in fact licensing content directly from quality publishers and paying them significant dollars across multiple years. This is not the, the same as sort of the Facebook watch deals where you just, where they licensed a show uh, and that was it. So new relationships, better economics for publishers. I think that those are things we can expect for, look, look for. One really, really important point, and this is uh, that we've talked a lot about at Bloomberg, and um, Brian mentioned this, which is, you know, we've all diversified our revenue streams as far as we possibly can. I mean, we're 10, 15 years into this, this, these changes, this disruption, and we've gone from advertising to subscriptions, to events, to e-commerce, to licensing. We've done everything. So what do you do once you've just, you've squeezed all the value out of your existing model? Well, you actually can adopt a new strategy, which you can just jump over the wall that, of your existing brand portfolio and actually create a new brand that actually, that leverages a lot of the assets of your existing brand. But that new brand can be in an extremely high growth, exciting place, like social, like video, like mobile, like global, whatever it may be. And you're seeing publishers create completely new businesses as a form of revenue diversification. So think of BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed in 2018 announced that they had $100 million of brand new revenue that had come in the last 24 months from new businesses, new activities. So Buzz, a big part of that was BuzzFeed launching Tasty. Tasty was a brand, it was not the BuzzFeed brand, but it was a new brand within their, within their environment that they created, which actually generated so much growth. At Bloomberg Media last year, we could see the writing on the wall on digital advertising and how difficult it was gonna be, and so we said to our, uh, all of our colleagues, we're gonna launch four brand new businesses in 2018, because all of our growth is gonna come from disruptive new activities, which we're gonna launch offensively against other legacy players and be the disruptor ourselves. So we launched a competitor to the World Economic Forum in Davos, which is a, obviously this big gathering of CEOs and heads of state in Switzerland. We launched a new one in China, and that is now a very high growth business. We launched TikTok, which is really going after the global news uh, news space, uh, the BBCs, the CNNs. And so any, any of us can do this. You don't have to be limited to diversification from your existing portfolio. A short one here, uh, programmatic obviously is, uh, is central and becoming sort of almost uh, the de facto way that we do all do business and we'll, we'll continue to be more that way. I think that the shift between open uh, exchanges moving towards direct programmatic relationships and moving towards private marketplaces is obviously dramatically underway. We're seeing this across all of our businesses at Bloomberg and our competitors' businesses, and we're seeing an ability to actually move up the pricing and the value funnel in the process, which is very, very helpful. Um, and I think four out of five programmatic dollars in 2020 are gonna be bought either direct or gonna be bought through PMPs, um, which is a big change from the past. The OTT market um, is still nascent and is, is, is complicated and as, as high growth as it is. Um, it is really where so much of the dollars I mentioned before, the $232 billion of advertising, are going to be moving. Uh, it's growing at a very, very high rate. Um, and 
you know, like Mary Meeker talks often about how mediums and, and engagement gets ahead of advertising monetization. Well, OTT is now representing about 30% of actual television viewing, OTT forms of viewing, and yet only 3% of the actual TV budgets are actually di are directed against that 30% of viewing. And so you're going to see a huge swing of television advertising or video advertising moving towards OTT. And publishers do actually have an opportunity and advantage here. They have storytelling capabilities. If anyone has watched The Weekly by The New York Times, which is now on FX, I mean, they're taking their journalistic skills and applying it to, to video in a smart, in a smart way. Like ourselves at Bloomberg Television, we've got a global television network. We can use all those resources and assets to create OTT play that is very successful. You know, the events business is mystifying because it's sort of, it's the oldest form of media, obviously, face-to-face -face conversations. And yet, I, year in and year out, see this as the fastest growing form of media. It is remarkable. I can, you know, in 2018, I think Bloomberg's events business grew 5x over 2017. Um, because we made lots of investments, but the scale of the growth outstripped every single other channel that we've been uh, operating in. So, and the secret here is that everyone just does events as, uh, as sort of almost like in a rote way. They, they roll out similar events to their competitors, and no one really applies a lot of high-quality talent to the events business. You know, I always joke, like, there's no MBA students graduating from Stanford Business School or Harvard Business School or whatever business school who come out and say, oh yeah, well, I want to be an entrepreneur in the event space. Um, they all want to go into different spaces. And so the actual possibilities of bringing great talent into, into the event space, reinventing it, innovating, thinking differently is a major, major opportunity for publishers. Technology is going to drive costs down in the content creation side dramatically. At Bloomberg, one-third of all of the news stories we produce are actually enabled through machine learning or artificial intelligence, um, which is having a, a huge impact on the productivity uh, of our journalists as well as the cost structure we operated in. Um, and the world, of course, which has always seemed like this faraway place, because America is this, this very big continental mass that is far from Europe, far from Asia. The idea that global could be an expansion point has always been a talking point on slides, and I think it's it's ultimately coming to more of a real fruition. Um, you know, the vast majority of economic growth in the world across the next 20, 30, 40 years is not going to come from America. It's not going to come from Europe. It's going to come from China, India. Middle East, Latin America, and Africa. And so you're seeing a shift from the west to the east and from the north to the south. And there are significant opportunities to, to get involved in that, those mega trends and to take your media businesses, your capabilities into those markets. But don't think that the world is just one big global mass that can have one strategy, one strategy fits all. The world is a series of individual markets. And so pick your market that you want to operate in and then bring your brands, your, your, your products, your technology, your capabilities, and you can actually succeed market by market if you, um, are smart. And finally, um, the media industry, the publishing industry, for again, for whatever reason, has never been sort of at the top of the list as a destination for talent. I think it's when you, as much it's driven by economics, because I think a lot of people who graduate from, from universities or from business schools tend to go to Wall Street, they tend to go to consulting. But if you can solve this, this talent gap, because the industry is so exciting and so different. The, our product is journalism, it's ideas, it's content. 
And if you could, if you could entice great talent to come into the industry and develop at that type of talent culture and operational excellence, you truly, truly can have an advantage because a lot of your competitors will not be doing that. Um, I remember when I was uh, running Atlantic Media Company before Bloomberg, we used to go to college campuses and actually go and recruit directly onto college campuses. And we were the only media company uh, that did that. It was a very sort of eccentric and unusual thing. But I remember five, ten of those employees that we hired and, and almost personally um, recruited ended up being significant creators of value for our organization. While you know there, the future is, in my view, brighter in aggregate than you would think, the, the reality is that the industry is not dying, it's not going extinct, but it's actually just going through a process of slimming down. It's going through a resizing, it's going through a, a, a disruption that is changing the nature of the business. And so there seems to be, for even the hottest, most well-executed, most well-funded, most well-publicized startups in publishing, whether you talk about BuzzFeed or Vox or HuffPost or uh, you know, the vice, there seems to be sort of a revenue wall that, that has sort of emerged where you cannot actually, it's just the, the notion of actually building a very large subscription advertising business, publishing business in 2019 is, is, is actually increasingly far-fetched. And what we have to accept is that we can still build good businesses. We don't have to die. We don't have to go extinct. If we specifically, if we follow some of these strategies, but we have to change our expectations and be a lot more realistic that the industry we're in has been is a smaller industry, and the potential for each of our businesses is not what it was in the past. So, with that, I will I think invite Brian to come back on and uh, cool. take any questions. Cool. Um, so there was a mix of optimism with with realism, a little yeah. dose of pessimism. I mean, what you're basically saying is expectations got out of whack, and everyone needs to accept that there are going to be very few, if any, billion-dollar media companies that were created in the last, say, 15 years, and that, um, you know, that that's just how it is, and you have to operate your business that way. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we're talking about what the publishing business, the journalism and content-based business, um, which is what this presentation was largely focused on, and I think that that is is the case. I think you could see an outlier uh, here or there sort of potentially get to, to higher levels, but I, I think the only really reliable way for a new entrepreneur to build a multi-billion dollar content-based, journalism-based business would be to actually have a portfolio of different businesses that, all that are all distinctly serving different categories and doing extremely well using many of these strategies, but in aggregate actually are reaching, reaching that type of that type mm -hmm. of revenue level. So outside of um, venture capital and the expectations game, is there anything on the execution front that you think broadly that a lot of media companies did wrong over the last, like, say, five, seven years? Well, other than the original sin of giving away content for free, um, <laughs> which I can't remember the exact date or the person who's responsible for that, I mean, I, I think we've talked about this over the years. I mean, I think the, you know, the mad rush to um, to the platforms from 2012, 13, 14, whatever that period was, 15. That was obviously not a productive period. Um, I think people, you know, had to had to grow with that and grow. They invested on the back of those expectations and then have had to pare back dramatically. Um, you know, what's interesting now is 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 where you're beginning to see sort of pockets of off-platform monetization working. 
Um, and it's a combination of shifting dynamics between publishers and platforms, better revenue shares, the ability to sell your content and package it on the platforms. But these are things that were not possible until just the last, you know, the last couple of years. And so um, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm hopeful. Right. So what does all this mean for Bloomberg Media? I mean, you operate, I mean, because I'm sure a lot of people out there are saying, well, we don't have a terminal business. Um, that's an advantage uh, that Bloomberg has. Um, but what does all of this, this sort of pivot to realism mean for Bloomberg Media? Well, I think um, Bloomberg Media is no different than, than any you know, other media company. This, obviously, despite the fact that we are sort of part of a, of a larger ecosystem, you know, we measure our value and our performance based on, on number one, how much um, influence, brand value, and other sources of value we can bring to our core business. But secondarily, we very much measure ourselves as a media company the way any media company would measure, measure themselves. But, you know, how dynamic is our, is our revenue? Um, how are we managing our, our bottom line, et cetera? And I think that um, you know, we have been... We've, we've adopted a strategy the last couple of years of saying we're not going to be one of the media companies that are sitting back and complaining about the <clears throat> decline of this and the decline of that and the loss of control of this, but rather we're going we're gonna to figure out how we can grow despite the environment. And as I mentioned, you know, we grew 16% last year in a very high, uh, relatively high revenue number. Um, we're going to grow again this year, and all of that is due to the fact that we've been pushing ourselves to innovate, pushing ourselves to not accept the status quo, and doing that with great talent mm -hmm. and good execution. Do you wish you did subscriptions earlier? Um, it's going really well, so I think the, I'd have to say yes. Yeah. Uh, well, you were a pessimist a couple years ago. I know you had caveats in there, but you said there are very few success cases that once you get beyond the New York Times and a, and a few others, and, and there's ones like in the more narrow B2B focus that yeah. you didn't see a giant market. I, I actually, can, I, in, my, in the first slide here, I actually opened up with that, that a couple years ago I was more pessimistic yeah. about it. Um, I do think that, the, that my pessimism is, is declining a little bit for... You know, for exceptionally different content of a very high quality, um, and obviously Bloomberg falls into that business professional B two B. It's paid for largely by a corporate credit card. Um, so anyone who's sort of in that space, I think you've got a tremendous opportunity. And again, as I mentioned earlier, like the athletic, anyone who's in an enthusiast space where the passion and the sort of the fan base is so so dedicated, I think also stands a good mm -hmm. chance. But I think by implication, you're saying that the subscription programs from a lot of um, sort of general interest and those in the middle are going to be tough. Yes, I you know there's there's quite a few that have that where, where I've hit the paywall myself you know coming up on five, 10, 15, 20 times. And I think at that point if you're not subscribing, um, you know, th that's sort of that's the list of those that I think fall in the undifferentiated middle, mm -hmm. the general interest middle um, that I don't think will succeed. So what are the biggest bets you're I mean, you talked about a lot of, of the new initiatives, but what are the, going into 2020, what are the three biggest bets? Well, the biggest bets, I mean, so we're, we're looking to build a, uh, a, a major convening platform in China, um, and we're doing this, we've been working on this for five years. Uh, 
The uh, World Economic Forum in Davos is um, a phenomenal gathering of world leaders, of CEOs. If any of you've been there, it's just it's it's, a, it's an amazing group of people. But of course, it's based in in Davos, Switzerland, and. Um, if you ask anybody um, where the future of the global economy is, you're definitely not going to be pointing at Western Europe or Switzerland. You're going to be pointing east and pointing towards capitals like New Delhi or capitals like Beijing or like Jakarta, based on the trends I mentioned earlier. And so the, the, we are, um, are at attempting to, to sort of plant a flag in the future, if you will, and bring together the, the leaders of the global business and political communities that will become the leaders of the economy, the global economy of tomorrow. Uh, it's a major, major undertaking. It's, um, and I think you know, the, the, the lesson I think for, 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 for publishers perhaps is, um, is if you force your thinking to be, to be bigger than even you thought it could possibly be, you end up on a productive path where actually all the blood, sweat, and tears you're putting into something are actually delivering on something much larger than, than something, than something smaller. And I think, and, and also if you could look at sort of an existing legacy pool of revenue or existing legacy group of, um, of businesses that are, that are clearly not as relevant as they were today, that are clearly seeing customers, then you can, you can, you can pinpoint your disruption to those audiences, to those revenue pools and be successful. Okay. That's one. Okay, number one, one. Um, TikTok, uh, and we. Uh, this is not the TIKTOK. We were actually the first uh, to launch the TICTOC, which is a um, a mobile social video brand that uh, that basically is uh, a, a general news, um, intelligent, short form uh, video product that lives on Twitter exclusively and has lived on Twitter. And we, we did a deal with Twitter where we said, listen, Twitter really is the largest news media organization on the planet. I think there's 150 million people coming to Twitter every single day. Some very large percentage of those people are just coming for news. And yet there is not, there's not been a native organic video news product that exists that was tailored for Twitter. And so we uh, launched launched TikTok about 15, 16 months ago. This was an example of advertisers partnering with us to actually benefit from the scale of a platform, but also to be associated with content that was much more curated, much more high quality, in, in, in our case, obviously coming from our newsroom. Um, and it was just, it's just been a smashing success. We did about 100 million, we do 100 million views this month across Twitter. Um, it's, I think, one of the biggest partnerships that Twitter's ever, ever undertaken of this nature. Got a million followers on Twitter. We're now on Instagram. We're on YouTube uh, and growing very rapidly. And of course, the big effort in 2020 for us is going to be to take it from being just a mobile and social-based uh, business to something, to a more uh, a, a longer form OTT product to complement the social mm -hmm. uh, short form clips. And that's going to be a, a big investment um, and a big area of growth for us. Yeah. Is it profitable? It ha it's, been, it's, been, it's been basically designed as sort of a, a business that would actually grow profitably. And so in year one, it was profitable and it's continuing okay. on that path. And, um, and we're hoping to do the same as we expand into OTT. But something like this, I mean, can this be a big business in the Bloomberg sense of big business? Or is this just like looking for like smaller wins? No, these can be, I mean, actually one of the criteria for us determining these, these jump the wall disruption opportunities was around businesses that could be, you know, that could, could be significant. And, uh, and so these are all businesses that operate in markets 
with several hundred, if not billions of dollars of existing revenue. I mean, our subscription business is competing in a 1.5, 2, $2 billion subscription market, which is, which is quite large, and we're just getting into it for the, for the first time. The, the TikTok business, if you look at the scale of what CNN has built around the world, if you look at you know, all the other cable news channels around the world, I mean, that's a very, very a multi-billion dollar business and, and some significant profit pools. So all of these actually are designed to, to be the new guard of brands in these very large billion dollar yeah. markets. So uh, the final one is agency services. Are you less bullish on this as a big opportunity? I know there, there's obviously an opportunity there in providing agency services. Um, but there's a there's a scaling challenge there. There is, and we you know we've been building out an, an agency, a marketing services capability, and we've been experimenting with different ways of integrating the marketing services um, functions with our ad sales, in order to actually just move from a commoditized. Uh, agency-led advertising conversation, responding to RFPs into a much more client-centric one where you're talking about you know, solving business problems and marketing problems, not just responding to an RFP. And we've had a lot of success with it. I think what we're still working on is how do you scale it? How do you scale it in a, in a significant way? I mean, um, and, uh, and that's going to be one of our, our big areas of focus in 2020. Okay, so do you have, I, I, that was my third, but what's your third like big bet? I mean, the third big bet, honestly, is subscriptions. You know, yeah. I mean, and 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 uh, the amount. I mean, that that is uh, proving to be a very large business for us in a very short period of time. Uh, we have the adva advantage or the benefit of being a completely global brand, and so going into markets across Asia and and um, fine tuning your product and your marketing strategies and your editorial strategies for this big global opportunity is, is, mm -hmm. is a major focus. And it doesn't hurt the ad business. Not so far, but I do think that it, you know, once it gets to a certain scale, you end up actually requiring leadership at the center that is really looking across these different revenue streams and, and balancing them out. Obviously, you know, there's a, an annuity factor to the subscription revenue business, which is preferential, because yeah. uh, you don't start every year at zero, like the advertising <laughs> business. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it, at this point, we, you know, we've been fortunate to have large, large enough of inventory to, to pursue both quite freely. Okay. All right. Justin, thank you thank so you. much. Appreciate right. it. Thank you. Cool. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please do take time to rate and review this podcast on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to contact me with any feedback. I am Brian at Digiday.com and at BMRC on Twitter. Pierre Bianome produced this podcast.